welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and then pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. My co-host today is Dr. Kevin He. He is an internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And if you haven't heard it already, I would definitely recommend checking out Kevin's previous episode on Cryptococcus, which is episode 17, also known as Yeasty Boys. Next, I will introduce our guest today. Joseph Sassin is an assistant professor of medicine and a transplant ID physician at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. He previously completed his internal medicine residency at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York City. This was followed by his ID fellowship at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center and MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Today is part one of the Troll of Transplantation, where we're going to talk a little bit about CMV and solid organ transplant recipients. Stay tuned for part two with Dr. Camille Cotton that'll be coming out two weeks from this episode, thinking more about resistant and refractory CMV disease. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Before we dive into the case, we like to start off because as everyone's favorite culture podcast, uh, we ask our guests if there's a little piece of culture or something you have enjoyed recently that you would like to share with the listeners. Sure. So first, thank you for having me and I look forward to our discussion today. In terms of culture, I'm a big opera fan and I have a soft spot for the works of Bizet and Verdi. During the earlier stages of the pandemic, uh, the Met Opera from New York City was streaming some of its greatest works online for free. Yeah. And that was a great wellness resource, at least for me. I think now you can access them uh, on demand for for a subscription. Well, I know nothing about opera, so I'll have to use your recommendations. So today's consult question is about a 70-year-old male who has had a renal transplant and comes in with abdominal pain and diarrhea. And so they would like us to help them evaluate for infection. Um, So I will throw it over to Kevin. I'll get started with our case. This is a 70-year-old male with end-stage renal disease secondary to hypertensive nephropathy who is status-posted deceased on a renal transplant in October of 2020. The serologies were CMV donor positive recipient negative, as well as EBV donor indeterminate recipient negative, who was presenting with one month of fatigue, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. His PMH is also notable for a large B-cell lymphoma, status postponectomy and gastric wedge resection seven years ago, for which he received six cycles of chemotherapy and has been in remission since, as well as coronary artery disease. Regarding his transplant history, he underwent a deceased donor renal transplant in October of 2020 with serologies pre-transplant being hepatitis B negative non-immune, hepatitis A negative, hepatitis C negative, CMV serology negative, donor CMV antibody positive, EBV negative, donor EBV indeterminate, and toxo negative, donor toxo negative. He was induced with basiliximab and was maintained on a regimen of tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. His post-operative course was complicated by a delayed graft function, which eventually improved. His prednisone had been tapered off prior to discharge for instant transplant admission, and his DSA has remained below the median range. He was initially given prophylaxis against PCP with Bactrim and 
CMV with Valgan Cyclovir with the anticipated duration of the latter being six months given his high-risk CMV status. Now, before we get back to the case, Dr. Sassoon, we wanted to pause here to discuss this last point. There are two major strategies for CMV disease prevention after solid organ transplant, antiviral prophylaxis and preemptive therapy. Would you be able to give us a brief overview of the difference between these approaches and how we utilize the serostatus of the donor and the recipient to help stratify the risk of infection? Sure. So first, let's uh, remember that CMV is probably the most common infection after transplant and one of the most significant complications of transplant. Uh, CMV can affect the transplant recipient through its direct lytic effects, which manifest with end-organ disease directly caused by CMV, such as pneumonitis, colitis, gastritis, hepatitis, retinitis. As well as through its indirect effects, CMV is an immunomodulatory virus, and CMV reactivations have been associated with graft rejection, graft-versus-host disease, and worsening immunosuppression by virtue of the virus or some of its therapies, uh, thus leading to a higher incidence of bacterial and fungal infections as well. Uh, For these reasons, it's very important to be proactive when it comes to CMV issues uh, in this patient population. As you mentioned, there are two strategies that can be used and that actually are not mutually exclusive. The first one is prophylaxis, which is the administration of an antiviral drug to all patients who are at risk for a determined period of time after the transplant, and that duration is usually based on their risk level. Prophylaxis is an effective strategy in preventing direct and indirect CMV effects. It was proven effective in large randomized controlled trials. It is easy to coordinate and apply since you are following an algorithm. And it has a positive impact on indirect outcomes such as graft loss and mortality. Nevertheless, with prophylaxis, you will be exposing all of your patients to the antiviral drug whereas some of these patients might never develop a CMV infection or disease. Uh, so there's always the risk of uh, overtreatment, and with that comes a risk of unnecessary toxicities and higher drug cost. Prophylaxis might also delay CMV-specific immune reconstitution. And lastly, one should be aware of the risk of post-prophylaxis delayed onset CMV disease, particularly in the highest risk patients. The drugs currently used for prophylaxis in solid organ transplant recipients are oral valgancyclovir, like your patient here, uh, or IV gancyclovir. Letermovir was approved for prophylactic use in hematopoietic cell transplant recipients, but is not yet approved for use in solid organ transplant patients. Uh, One of the trials looking into prophylaxis with letermovir in kidney transplant recipients is estimated to be completed in April 2022, so stay tuned for news on that front. Uh, On the other hand, preemptive therapy is based on the concept of surveillance of viremia after transplant and the administration of antiviral therapy to patients who reach a certain threshold of viremia, or what we call CMV infection, to halt the progression of viremia to end-organ disease. This strategy essentially tampers down many of the disadvantages of prophylaxis by targeting therapy to the patients who are at highest risk of disease, uh, minimizing overtreatment, minimizing toxicities, and minimizing drug costs. However, a strategy that's purely based on preemptive therapy would miss some cases of CMV and organ disease, 
that are not preceded by viremia. And most notably here you're talking about a GI disease, so colitis and gastritis, which can be seen with undetectable viremia in the peripheral blood. Uh, this strategy, the preemptive strategy, also relies on the availability of sensitive CMV testing. Uh, currently, we rely on quantitative nucleic acid amplification testing as opposed to PP65 antigenemia detection in, in older days, and that used to rely on the number of lymphocytes present in the peripheral blood. You also want your CMV test to have a quick turnaround time to allow for a quick and proactive response. So you would want 24, 48 hours at most in terms of uh, turnaround time. In real life, we actually use a mix of both, uh, prophylaxis and preemptive therapy. This is why I said earlier they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, what proportions of each strategy uh, are used depends on the individual patient risks. As a general principle, the major risk factor for CMV disease after solid organ transplant is a qualitative or quantitative deficiency in global immunity and or in CMV-specific immunity. To estimate the patient's risk, we usually measure pre-transplant serologies for both the donor and the recipient. Uh, there are certain assays that measure CMV-specific cell-mediated immunity um, the use of those assays in the pre-transplant stage is still investigational. We will come back to those a little later. Uh, the highest risk group when you measure serologies is going to be the recipients who are seronegative but receive an organ from a seropositive donor. And this is what we refer to as D plus R minus. Uh, the moderate risk group would be seropositive recipients, so R plus. Within that group, those who receive an organ from a seropositive donor, so D plus R plus, are at higher risk compared to those who have a seronegative donor, so D minus R plus. The lowest risk group are the recipients who are seronegative and who receive an organ from a seronegative donor, so this is D minus R minus. Uh, just a side note, in hematopoietic cell transplant, it's different. It's usually a recipient seropositive that's the major determinant. Uh, beyond uh, seropositivity for both the donor and the recipient, there are additional risk factors for CMV reactivation. These include lymphodepleting agents such as antithymocyte globulin, alemtuzumab, acquiring high doses of maintenance immunosuppression, allograft rejection, especially that this is uh, often accompanied by another round of lymphodepleting therapy, and the type of organ being transplanted. So lungs and small intestines are higher risk than other organs. Uh, the use of uh, mTOR inhibitors, such as sirolimus and everolimus, is uh, actually associated with a lower risk of uh, CMV. Uh, there's an interesting concept called the net state of immunosuppression, uh, which is kind of important to estimate each individual patient's risk of infection. There's a nice paper that addresses it in CID in 2020 by Dr. Jay Fishman, so I can refer you to that. Um, with this in mind, the AST uh, ID COP guidelines of 2019 recommend antiviral prophylaxis with valgancyclovir, uh, usually administered at 900 milligrams once a day, or gancyclovir as 5 milligrams per kilo IV once a day, 
and these are doses for normal rhythm function. And this uh, regimen, uh, one of these two agents, are recommended for high-risk donor-positive recipient-negative patients, as well as for moderate-risk recipient-positive patients. The duration of prophylaxis that is recommended varies between 3 and 12 months, uh, depending on the level of risk of the patient, whether they're high risk versus moderate risk, and depending on the organ being transplanted. So lung and uh, heart and lung uh, transplants have the longest durations, and these are the ones that will reach the 12 month. Uh, the guidelines also provide recommendations regarding preemptive therapy as an option if logistic support is available. Uh, they also provide instructions on monitoring intervals. Uh, they do not provide a specific viral load threshold to initiate therapy, uh, but rather recommend that this threshold be assay-specific, center-specific, and risk-specific. Some patients might require longer prophylaxis uh, and or monitoring than the recommended duration, so we have to keep an open mind uh, with those numbers, particularly if they receive further lymphodepleting therapy for the treatment of a rejection. Thank you. That was a very helpful outline. Looking at the specifics relevant to our patient, and just for some additional context, he completed his valgancyclovir after the six-month duration of prophylaxis in April when he was transplanted in October of the preceding year. And in June, about two months afterwards, he began to have this constant generalized abdominal pain, fatigue, and for the last month, persistent non-bloody watery diarrhea. Now, this constellation of symptoms prompted him to present to the ER. In the ED, he was noted to have a creatinine elevated to 1.5 from baseline of 0.9 to 1.1, a leukocytosis to 13.8 with a total neutrophil count of around 13,000 and a total lymphocyte count of only 740, bicarb with 11 and a gap of 19, as well as LFTs notable for a mild transaminitis to an ALT of 73 and AST of 101 an alkafos of 123, and a T-belly of 0.6. His LDH was 345, and he was a little hypoalbuminemic to 3.4, and his lactate was elevated to 2.6. His tacrolimus trough was drawn, and it turned out to be 4.4. His UA was not pyuric, and they did get some blood and urine cultures that are pending at the moment. A little bit of Additional history for this patient, he was born and raised in Massachusetts and now lives in Boston, never traveled outside North America, but has roamed around the United States, West Coast, Midwest, as well as uh, Canada. He hasn't traveled at all since his transplant last year and is currently retired, but used to work at an office desk job. Previously did have a pet cat, but the cat's now staying with his children since his transplant, and he's been being diligent in avoiding raw foods. He's never used tobacco, doesn't drink alcohol, and uses no recreational drugs. And when you go and talk to him, he's not in distress, but a little uncomfortable. When his abdomen is palpated, he's a little bit tender non-specifically, without any signs of guarding or rebound. He's not fluid overloaded. In fact, he appears a little bit dry. And a right quadrant ultrasound obtained in the ED illustrates some cholelithiasis, but no a palatobiliary ductal dilatation, and no signs of cholecystitis. Now, with all of these details together, we just wanted to see what you're thinking about so far. And while we certainly suspect that CMV is probably the issue here, we do want to keep an open mind about what should be on the infectious diseases differential for diarrhea 
any solid organ transplant recipient. Great. So certainly here CMV remains a concern, uh, particularly with the entity I mentioned earlier, uh, post-prophylaxis delayed onset CMV disease. And this usually occurs in donor-positive recipient-negative uh, patients in the first three to six months after completion of prophylaxis which is encompassed with a truly late-onset CMV disease that can occur years after transplantation. Uh, there are various efforts that can be done to prevent this, including close clinical follow-up uh, and early treatment when symptoms occur, like here, uh, routine viral surveillance after completion of prophylaxis, uh, further prolongation of antiviral prophylaxis, but that usually comes at the expense of uh, significant myelotoxicity, uh, and or immunologic monitoring at the end of prophylaxis and thereafter, usually with things like lymphocyte count, CD4 count, or CMV-specific cell-mediated immunity. Uh, to get back to your original question, the, the differential diagnosis of diarrhea and solid organ transplant recipients, as you can imagine, is very broad. To follow the classical scheme of infections versus uh, no infections, infections include bacteria, C. diff is a big one, uh, Campylobacter, Salmonella, Aeromonas, E. coli, bacterial overgrowth, viruses, obviously, such as CMV, but also the GI viruses, norovirus, adenovirus, and the others, and parasites. Uh, so you get here uh, the classic Giardia and Tamiba, but also the traditional GI opportunistic parasites, so Cryptosporidium, Microsporidium, Cystoisospora, and Cyclospora. Keep in mind that these patients can have non-infectious causes of diarrhea, uh, mostly medication-related, immunosuppressives such as mycophilate, tacrolimus, serolimus, uh, cyclosporin, and just plain other non-immunosuppressive medications. Uh, diarrhea can also be a manifestation of graft-versus-host disease or post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. Uh, for the sake of time, I will not go into the timeline of infections after organ transplantation, but there's a nice comprehensive figure in, uh, again, Dr. Fishman's review of infections and in organ transplant recipients in NEJM back in 2007, and uh, I think that still holds uh, until this day. Thank you for that excellent differential. Now, diving into the diagnosis for our patient, the CMV viral load was obtained and didn't return at 6.25 log or about 1.7 million copies per milliliter. Would you be able to give us a quick overview about CMV disease and its distinction from infection? And how do we put this case together? And what, if any, additional workup would you suggest at this point now that we have this information? Sure. So I think it's always important to define the disease entities you are dealing with. While most of these definitions are actually designed for clinical trials to agree on standardized definitions that would allow studies to be comparable, I think they are very useful for our daily clinical practice, uh, particularly to guide us in our diagnostic approach. For CMV and transplant patients, there's a landmark definitions paper that was published in CID in 2017. Uh, in this paper, CMV infection is defined as virus isolation or detection of viral proteins or nucleic acid in any body fluid or tissue specimen. When this specimen is the blood, then the assays can measure a virus in the plasma, serum, or whole blood. Uh, we talk about viremia, which is uh, culturing the virus from the blood, 
antigenemia, which is detecting the PP65 uh, antigen that's specific for CMV, or DNAemia, which is detection of CMV DNA, which is the most common technique nowadays. Uh, CMV disease includes end-organ disease caused by CMV, such as pneumonia, GI disease, hepatitis, retinitis, etc., as well as CMV syndrome, which is an entity that is only described in solid organ transplant. Uh, and that includes detection of CMV in the blood with at least two of the following. A fever, a new or increased malaise or fatigue, leukopenia or neutropenia, atypical lymphocytes more than 5%, thrombocytopenia, elevated AST or ALT to twice the upper limit of normal. Uh, the AST uh, ID guidelines summarize those definitions, uh, including the ones for proven and probable end organ disease in their first table in the guidelines. Uh, to use those definitions would make it easier to determine what diagnostic workup is needed. Uh, with our case here, we do suspect CMV GI disease, uh, the approach would be endoscopic examination would be necessary. Uh, we rely on the presence of symptoms, the presence of macroscopic mucosal lesions, and documentation of CMV in the tissue, either by histopathology, immunohistochemistry, culture, or DNA hybridization techniques to determine a proven or definite GI CMV disease. If you just have symptoms with documented CMV in the tissue, but without macroscopic mucosal lesions, that would make it a probable GI CMV disease. Now, that distinction might be more important for clinical trials rather than the clinical practice, but the definitions help you know what tests to order, and that to diagnose GI CMV uh, disease, you do need an endoscopic evaluation, both macroscopic and tissue. Uh, documenting CMV in the blood alone is not sufficient to diagnose CMV GI disease. I see. So the patient ultimately, actually, after discussion between the primary team and some of the consultants, did not undergo a colonoscopy or endoscopic evaluation. Given the degree of his viremia and the symptoms that he was having, as well as his DN, uh, CMV donor-positive recipient negative status prior to transplantation, he was initiated on induction therapy due to the high clinical suspicion for end organ disease due to the constellation of symptoms he was coming in with. Would you be able to teach us a little bit about these CMV treatment regimens, especially the differences between induction and maintenance therapy? When do you make the transition and when do you stop maintenance after that? So first, let's talk quickly about the available agents. Um, the first-line agents are gancyclovir, and that would be dosed at 5 mg per kilo IV every 12 hours, or valgancyclovir, which is 900 mg PO uh, every 12 hours for patients with normal renal function. Uh, it is recommended to preferentially use IV gancyclovir for patients with severe or life-threatening disease, uh, for those with a very high viral load, uh, and those with a questionable GI absorption. For mild to moderate disease, uh, oral valgancyclovir and IV gancyclovir are considered equally effective. Uh, there was a randomized trial establishing this non-inferiority back in 2007. For the patients who cannot tolerate gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, and that's usually because of cytopenias, uh, or for those patients who fail to respond to these agents, and here we would be going into the refractory resistance CMV chapter, uh, Second-line agents include foscarnet or cydofovir. 
These agents are reserved for the second line due to their significant nephrotoxicity. And just to get an idea of the nephrotoxicity with Foscarnet, a study out of Johns Hopkins in 2016 showed that 50% of the patients who received Foscarnet for refractory-resistant CMV developed renal dysfunction by the end of treatment, and 28% after six months. Now, for these folks who failed to respond to gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, a new agent, Maribavir, was recently approved by the FDA in November 2021 with a much better safety profile, so that's an exciting development. There have been case reports using letermovir as a second-line agent off-label. I personally would not use it in the setting of active viral replication due to the high risk of resistance development. So as you mentioned, uh, there are two stages of therapy. Uh, they call them induction and maintenance. You can think of induction as the full-dose therapy stage. Here you administer antivirals at the full therapeutic dose, which I just mentioned. Maintenance is essentially a secondary prophylaxis phase to prevent early recurrence of CMV. There is no preset duration or blanket duration for induction therapy. In the Valgancyclovir trial I mentioned earlier, they limited therapy for three weeks and a significant proportion of patients still had viremia by three weeks, suggesting that these patients probably needed longer durations of antiviral therapy. This is why the ASTID guidelines list three criteria that you need to meet before ending induction therapy. The first one is resolution of clinical symptoms. The second is virologic clearance below a threshold negative value and this value is uh, test-specific, uh, based on weekly lab monitoring, either with a quantitative nucleic acid amplification assay or if you still use PP65 antigenemia. And they define that as needing two consecutive results or a single negative if you're using a highly sensitive assay. And the third condition you have to meet is a minimum of two weeks of antiviral treatment. So once you meet those three conditions, and you, com you complete full-dose antiviral treatment, the guidelines state that secondary prophylaxis may be considered in certain high-risk patients. And here you would be using the prophylaxis doses as compared to the treatment doses, so once a day instead of twice a day for normal renal function. The duration of antivirals in this stage is not defined by the guidelines. Uh, different centers use different approaches. Most of them will use something between one and three months. It also depends on the individual patient situation, particularly in regards to lymphopenia. Some centers are starting to use CMV-specific uh, cell-mediated immunity assays to, to guide that decision. There was a retrospective study published in CID in 2017 looking at secondary prophylaxis with valgancyclovir, and it showed a reduction in relapse with a hazard ratio of 0.19, so it was a significant reduction. Uh, but this was only in the first six weeks uh, following treatment completion. The benefit did not extend beyond six weeks of secondary prophylaxis. I think this is still an area that deserves more investigations to determine the optimal approach and how to incorporate the use of uh, CMV-specific cell-mediated immunity and allow for CMV-specific T-cell immune reconstitution. Before concluding the treatment chapter, there are a few more interventions to mention. Uh, cautious reduction in immunosuppression should be considered, especially in moderate to severe disease, and uh, usually that comes in collaboration with our uh, transplant colleagues because you want to weigh this against the risk of uh, rejection. 
uh, you can switch from IV gencyclovir to oral val gencyclovir once there is clinical and virologic improvement, even if you have not completed uh, full dose therapy yet, uh, and as long as you don't have concerns for GI malabsorption. Uh, you should dose adjust gencyclovir and valgencyclovir based on renal function, but you should not adjust them down if your patient develops neutropenia or leukopenia or cytopenias. Underdosing is actually a risk factor for resistance. So if you still would like to use those agents, you can support with growth factors or uh, switch to a second-line agent. Intravenous immunoglobulins uh, or CMV-specific immunoglobulins may be considered for patients with life-threatening disease, for patients with CMV pneumonitis, or those who have hypogammaglobulinemia. Thank you. So, as you've discussed, the patient was induced with intravenous val uh, intravenous gancyclovir, excuse me, and his diarrhea did improve within one week of the gancyclovir initiation. His viral loads fell from 6.25 log at the outset to 6.2, 5.3, and then 3.9, eventually falling to undetectable levels by about six weeks after initiation of induction therapy. Um, he was ultimately discharged home from the hospital with a perfectly inserted central catheter to continue his IV cyclovir. And after his CMV viral loads were undetectable two times in a row, uh, after the seven total weeks of induction, he was eventually transitioned to maintenance valgen cyclovir. He continued the maintenance valgen cyclovir for about another 10 weeks, as you said. He eventually discontinued it, and since then, biweekly monitoring for CMV did not show any recurrent viremia. His monitoring was then discontinued after two months. So overall, a good outcome. To end the episode, there are there's always some exciting news in the transplant ID world, and you alluded to a little bit of this earlier. Would you be able to tell us about the latest in CMV care or new therapies available for our patients? Sure. There are some recent exciting developments in the CMV world, and I think a great potential for more exciting news in the future. The most recent update is, as I mentioned earlier, the approval of Maribavir for refractory or resistant post-transplant CMV. And that is a welcome option, especially in regards to its overall favorable safety profile. Some areas where we might hear news in the near future or where we need to better develop our understanding, the use of letermovir in organ transplant recipients. Uh, I mentioned the ongoing primary prophylaxis trial. We also need to better understand the place of letermovir in secondary prophylaxis. Uh, both in organ transplant and hematopoietic cell transplant. Uh, we also need to find the best way to incorporate the use of CMV cell-mediated uh, immunity assays in our daily clinical practice, the use of adoptive immunotherapy for treatment, particularly using CMV-specific cytotoxic T-lymphocytes. This is mostly a field of investigation in hematopoietic cell transplant recipients. Finally, I recently came across a very interesting paper published earlier this year. It's more a, a hematopoietic cell transplant paper. They actually looked at circulating cell-free DNA profiling in, in those patients and how this can be used to inform all the major complications of uh, hematopoietic cell transplant, including GVHD, disease relapse, but also infections by plasma virome screening. So I just found this to be very cool. At the end, I want to uh, have a special mention and recognition to uh, my mentor, Dr. Roy Shemali, who has taught me everything I know about CMV. And 
uh, and has accompanied me in developing that interest of mine. So, I've loved these uh, shout outs to people's mentors. A big thank you to Kevin and Joseph for joining me today. We'll have also a second CMV episode that's going to come out in two weeks. Like the past couple episodes, I just want to do a quick plug for our febrile survey, uh, which we're conducting to better understand how you use febrile to teach and learn, but also to help us understand what to do to improve for future episodes. The survey is voluntary, anonymous, and should only take about five to 10 minutes. You can find the link to the survey on our Twitter page, on the website, or in the description link for the episode. I'll just mention our usual disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Please don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com to find consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, as well as our library of ID infographics. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.